and thank you for listening to Literacy Matters. I'm your host, Cheryl Lundy-Swift. Today, I am excited to be here with Doug Fisher, Department Chair and Professor of Educational Leadership at San Diego State University, and his colleague, Nancy Fry, also a professor in the Educational Leadership Department at San Diego State. Now, Doug and Nancy are authors of How Scaffolding Works, a playbook for supporting and releasing responsibility to students. Doug and Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Cheryl. We're really excited to be able to talk about an essential part of instruction, which is scaffolding. Awesome, great. And so happy to have you here, Doug, as well. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation. Of course. Well, yesterday I had the pleasure to be with some educators in New York City, and uh, they were talking about meeting the needs of their diverse learners and the need to scaffold instruction, especially since COVID. Um, can you level set for our audience and tell us what exactly is scaffolding and why you both decided to dedicate an entire book to the topic? Oh, awesome. So scaffolding is providing the just right needed supports so that we can extend the reach of what the student is capable of. So when we think about scaffolding, it's this, we, we, we go back to like, where's your zone of proximal development, as well as your zone of potential development. It's where do I want you to get? Now, the metaphor of scaffolding is we can extend the reach of the worker. Importantly, when we scaffold a building or we put scaffolds up around something else, we don't spend a lot of money on the scaffolds because they're supposed to be temporary. They're supposed to come down. I don't want to live in a house that has scaffolding forever. I want the house to stand. That's the whole point is when we take away the scaffolds, is the learning enduring? Or are the scaffolds so, so much a part of what happened in the class that we have scaffold dependent learners where when the scaffolds come away, they essentially fall apart. That's what we're trying to avoid. That's why we wrote this book. So when you go way back to 1976, Wood Bruner and Ross who said, hey, let's propose this idea of scaffolding during tutoring. And people have you know, been on a quest ever since of like, what are the just right supports that we can provide to extend that student beyond what they're currently doing on their own? I love that visual image and you're right. No one wants those ugly scaffolds up the entire time. And I really appreciate that analogy for sure. Now, I really admired in your book that you point out that scaffolding obviously should be temporary one, but that you sh it should really develop students' thinking habits and result in them being able to transfer those skills for which we've scaffolded. How can teachers ensure that students are productively struggling, but also are given effective, temporary, just right scaffolding. You know, it's so important that they're able to have both productive success as well as productive struggle that happens during a lesson. And I think a key part of scaffolding is first of all, first of all, making sure that you're right sizing the task. Um, in other words, uh, as John Hattie likes to say, uh, not too hard, not too boring, right? But really right-sizing that task so that there is a sufficient level of challenge that's there. Now, when they're learning a brand new skill, 
or a brand new concept. They do need to have productive success. In other words, to be able to feel what it is that success looks like. But as their learning starts to go a bit deeper and they've had that introductory, um, those introductory lessons to that skill or concept, now it's time to be able to raise up the challenge just a bit to be able to right size it. And that's where some of the scaffolding comes into place. Of course, the climate has to be the this emotionally uh, safe experience that uh, students are having. And the scaffolding happens in being both able to anticipate and recognize when it is that a student or students are um, kind of confronting the tricky parts and uh, are stalled in terms of being able to move forward. And always, always within scaffolding, we're providing encouragement as well as helping to reflect back to them what it is they know, what it is they don't know, and what it is they might be able to do next. No, I, I really never really thought about this kind of productive success initially, right? That's a really cool term that you've coined there for us. So when teachers think about kind of this planning, right, when you're planning to make sure that it is right size, that you are also planning to give this kind of support throughout, you know, what exactly, you know, you mentioned in your book that teachers should make a decision about whether to scaffold, number one, but whether they should do that before, during, and after instruction. And typically, when I think educators think about scaffolding, they really think about it during. So could you say more about that? Sure. <clears throat> and we want to um, appreciate the, the people who've really studied this kind of work before, you know, Manu Kapoor, who said, you know, there are tasks that are productive struggle and productive failure and unproductive failure and unproductive success. And we have the, to think about the tasks we design for learners. <clears throat> In scaffolding research, some tools we have are applied before the lesson or the learning starts. So we pre-teach vocabulary. We reduce the rigor of the reading we're going to have students do. We give them sentence frames. You know, all those kinds of things are front-end scaffolds before the lesson or learning occurs. And then distributed scaffolds occur as the learning progresses. And, and we think about prompting and cueing and guiding. We think about modeling and the things that teachers do in real time. And then there are these back-end scaffolds, and some of which like solidify the learning or allow additional learning to occur. Things like study skills, giving students feedback, having them complete graphic organizers. The challenge is we see a lot of front-end scaffolds. We make an assumption that our students won't be able to do this, so we'll put in some front-end scaffolds. And that can be very dangerous. Of course, sometimes we need front-end scaffolds. We don't, we're not suggesting you get rid of them, but we're really thinking about in this task for these learners, am I making an assumption none of them can do it, which is why I'm doing a front-end scaffold, or am I waiting for, for student responses to the learning to decide if I want to use distributed scaffolding? There's a difference there. So we don't want to remove the rigor. We don't want to remove the chance of productive failure, where we learn from the mistakes we make. However, if we make the assumption that all kids can't do this and they all need this, we might lower our expectations for some students. So mm. front-end scaffolds need to be carefully, judiciously used, and we need to think about bumping up the distributed scaffolds and the back-end scaffolds. Another way of phrasing this is, there's a just-in-case scaffold, just in case anybody needs it, I put it in place, versus a just-in-time scaffold, responding 
as students need them. Hmm. So it sounds more like that what you're saying is that there's this balance. Yes. Of, right. And that maybe that distributed scaffolds are not necessarily planned, but instead are really a response to the individual students' learning needs. Um, how, how can a teacher maybe who's brand new, maybe not as well-versed, really respond appropriately uh, and provide those distributed scaffolds? I think first of all, it's helpful, especially for teachers who are newer to the practice to understand that there are a couple of key ways that you can distribute those scaffolds and that there is a greater degree of support depending on how it is that the student responds. So let's say, for example, you're in a small group reading lesson and uh, a student stalls at a particular point. Um, that first, um, that first scaffold, distributed scaffold that you want to move to is a pretty um, mild one. And it's really just posing a question. Um, uh, so for example, um, uh, so think about what it is that we've been learning about today, because sometimes just that reminder, oh yeah, yeah, we're learning about how it is that these uh, noun phrases are really working together in a sentence. That's sometimes all you need. But if that student is still stalled, then you want to move to a little bit more supportive um, distributed scaffold, and that's around prompting. So mm -hmm. if, they, if that question alone didn't get them unstuck, then it might be followed up with a prompt of one time, one kind or another. So for instance, um, asking them about some background knowledge that they might be able to utilize in that situation. Uh, if that still isn't enough, now we're gonna move to a third kind of distributed scaffold, which is around cueing them, around specifically shifting their attention to be able to notice or look at something that they have overlooked. So for instance, uh, maybe the cue is that they need to look back at the language chart that was developed uh, a bit earlier in the lesson or taking a look at the word wall or whatever it is that you want to shift their attention to. So this idea of distributed scaffolds as being questions, prompts, and cues can be of assistance to a new teacher so that you're not over scaffolding. We wanna make sure that students are able to uh, apply what it is that they know in new situations with a minimal amount of scaffolds and to fade those scaffolds out. So it sounds like to me that what you guys are both saying uh, is something you, that you talk about in your book, which is that teaching and learning involves strong relationships. Mm -hmm. um, that you need to know the learner. Can you say more about scaffolding as an engagement tool? Sure. So I'll start off with when we experience success, we're motivated. When we have a successful experience, we're motivated to try again. If I keep failing at something, at some point, I'm going to say, I'm not doing this anymore because it's too frustrating. Yep. Why am I doing this? So if teacher scaffolding results in some successes for me as a learner, I'm more motivated. I'm more engaged. It feels good to learn. All of us have had this experience of, I'm learning something and it feels pretty cool. And however the supports were in place to make me learn it, I want those again. But I don't want to create 
dependent learners. We want to create inter and independent learners, not dependent learners. So we have to think about, I have a great relationship. That means the scaffolds and the feedback are more likely to get in. And my responsibility as a teacher is to start fading some of those scaffolds away. That's where the research evidence gets a little thin. We actually don't know as much about how to fade scaffolds as much as we know how to provide scaffolds. So here's an example. Sentence frames were very common. People love sentence frames, think they're a really good, useful tool. So if you put about you know, 25 sentence frames on the wall and they're just random sentence frames, students might use them and look at them and add them in their conversation or in their writing, great. What if you could organize the sentence frames about by the use, their brain use? For example, you're ha you have to have an opinion or, or you have to make an argument. Here are five frames that help you do that. When you provide your reasons or your evidence, here are five frames that help you do that. When you make a connection with uh, evidence to your claim, here's some frames to do that. If someone offers you a counterclaim, here's how you respond. Here are five frames for that. If you want to seek evidence from other people, here are five frames for that. So they start to organize the frames into these categories or cognitive moves. And as students become more familiar with the frames, we start erasing the individual frames, but we leave the categories there. And eventually we start to remove the categories and those habits of how language works when you wanna make a claim and provide evidence and provide reasons and counterclaims has been internalized. And now you don't need the scaffolds anymore. That's from most to least kinds of scaffolding. There are other models of removing scaffolds, but if they're still using the same sentence frames months and months and months later, it's not actually anymore a scaffold. And if my question is, when we go to cover the walls for state testing, because we all do this, we cover the walls for state testing and yeah. student performance suffers as a result, they were still too dependent on the scaffolds. We didn't intentionally fade those scaffolds because learning means you can now do it without the scaffolds present. When you were learning, you had the scaffolds, but learning means you've permanently changed and you no longer need those scaffolds. It's really so powerful. So, wow. When we think about that, I, I remember covering all my walls and having my teachers cover their walls. And you're absolutely right. I think sometimes there's that fear that, oh my goodness, do they know it? And maybe there needs to be a little bit more research about, again, how to fade those scaffolds yeah. so they look back so they do know it. So could, could both of you walk our listeners through a plan for scaffolding like a real practical plan i know you guys have some really awesome models in your your book could you walk us through a plan yeah absolutely and and i'll use a a non-school example to kind of get us started uh, i'd like to think sure. about um uh, teaching a young child how to ride a bike and for, for anyone who has done this or has witnessed doing it, uh, that really is a whole uh, model of how it is that you scaffold. And that very first part is that there has to be a mental model. If you're teaching a child how to ride a bike, they need to know what bike riding looks like, right? You can't just roll a bicycle out in the driveway 
and tell them this is a bicycle and now I'm going to teach you how to ride it. And they have no mental model of what it is that bike riding is even supposed to look like. When we're teaching, we have to be able to formulate what a mental model is of what it is that we want our students to be proficient at, to, to master, and then to be able to offer what those mental models are. That often comes through some early instruction that includes some uh, think aloud some teacher think alouds and so on so that we can apprentice them into that model. And then there needs to be some goal setting that happens. And again, I'll use that bike uh, analogy. Yeah, they know what uh, what bike riding looks like because they've had those experiences, but now let's set some goals along the way. And they're short goals. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to ride together from here to the next mailbox. We have a short goal that's provided for them. Same thing goes whenever we're teaching. We have to have not only those long-term goals, that mental model, but also those incremental or those short goals. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I can add on some of the more academic. So there we are, we have a really complex piece of text that we're going to have students read and we have some choices. Do we tell them what the text is about in advance? That's a front end scaffold. It may ruin the rigor, but mm. the text may be way too complex. Do we do a visual version? Uh, do we give them a little video advance organizer? So what are we going to do in front of this text and try not to remove the rigor? And if we have the students read this text a couple times, that's a distributed scaffold. So the first time, let's look at some literal information. Let's look at details. Now let's go back and let's look at some of the things the author was doing. And let's look at this word and how it fits. And the questioning and the prompting moves into more of a distributed model. And then on the back end, we start to say, OK, now we've read it a couple of times. Let's write a summarizing sentence or two and then create a visual, what happened in this text? That's a back-end scaffold. So teachers have to say, given what I know about my students, given where they are in their learning journey, and the task I have in front of, my, in front of us, what is the appropriate range of scaffolds? How much on the front end do I wanna do? Without removing rigor, because we have to be careful that we make a dangerous assumption that no one can do this. So right. replacing the text and saying, nobody can do this, and there's no teaching that would be possible, that's a dangerous assumption. So if we do that, we're saying none of the students could possibly access this text with any other amounts of instruction. So then we might say, okay, <clears throat> I'm gonna watch a short video where they introduce a concept that will be focused on this. So they have some conceptual knowledge before they read. Building background, helpful for reading. It's a front end scaffold. There are about three words that are gonna be tripping them up. So I want to make sure they know these words before we go into the reading itself. But there are five more words that we're going to work on during the reading, that to unpack during the reading, where I'm not going to tell them or talk about what the words mean, but during the reading, we're going to start to figure out what did that mean in this context? So there's ways to like bounce them back and forth. I wish, you know, I hope what this, what this resource does for people is to say, you have options, front end, distributed, back end, and you should be strategic about when you use them. And all three of them work in balance and in concert with each other. The one we haven't really talked about is peer supports because peer scaffolding is also very powerful. And there's a lot of research on peer scaffolding, especially emotional scaffolding from peers. Peers are pretty good at saying, we can do hard things, keep at it. Come on, come back to it. You know, 
I'm sorry you're feeling that way. Peers are really helpful in saying, can you help me? I need help right now. And then also peers can be taught to academically scaffold. So I, I think it's about what are my contingencies that I need to be putting in place to get the outcome for learning that I'm looking for. And may I ask both of you this final question? As you think, as you think about teachers that are returning back who may have had a really super challenging year, what is something they can first do to ensure that they're really setting up some scaffolds and that they're also uh, fading out those scaffolds? What can they, what's something practical that they could do at the start of the year? So I, I think, uh, especially Cheryl, what you're reminding us of is how important it is to always have a plan in place for how it is that we're going to, going to fade that scaffold out. When we take that child out to uh, learn how to ride a bike, we also are always thinking, when is the time when I can release the back of the seat and they mm. can on their own. So in getting started in the school year, it wouldn't be surprising that there might be more front end scaffolds happening more often in the earlier part of the year. But there always needs to be a plan in place from the beginning. When do I want to be able to begin to fade out what these scaffolds are and perhaps replacing them with some newer, more challenging scaffolds? Mm -hmm. I, I really like that, Nancy. And I tell you, I can take that analogy, that bike analogy so far, because we oftentimes, we hold on to those scaffolds and want to use those scaffolds. We're so fearful that we'll hurt our students, right? We're so hurt, so fearful that, in fact, them falling uh, is tough. But, you know, I think some of those falls are, are really important, right? They're really great lessons for yes. our students um, so that they can kind of fall forward uh, so that they can learn also on their own. So I, I really appreciate that. So thank you so much, Nancy. And uh, this has been an awesome conversation. Just want to remind everyone to go out and get that book, How Scaffolding Works, a playbook for supporting and releasing responsibility to students. Thanks. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course, this was such a great conversation. I could talk to you guys all night, but I know that you have to go, Nancy, and much success to the person who's defending. Um, and it's a pleasure to, to talk with you guys. I'd love to continue Great working to talk with you guys. Thank you so much. And I, I love this. I just said, you know, I love the, um, the, the gradual release model that you have, um, Doug. I'm such a fan of that, oh, by thank the way. You. So yeah, thank awesome you. guys. So take Thanks care. Thanks so much, y'all. Made this easy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.